You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. The Boss Hog of Liberty podcast is the latest hit on the We Are Libertarians Network. Each week, Jeremiah Morrill and Dakota Davis explore life in Henry County, Indiana. It's a show about our circle of friends, public officials, and our experiences. 80% observation, life, humor, and 20% politics. Boss Hog of Liberty is the day-to-day happenings of Henry County, Indiana, which is just like your community. Add us on iTunes and sample us today. Dear Leader would want you to. Hey there, Liberty lovers. This is Mark Clare of the Lions of Liberty podcast, where we strive to bring you great conversations about the ideas of liberty three days a week, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Check us out at lionsofliberty.com. Hey guys, this is Roger Paxton, and if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com, or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow Podcast, striking the root every single episode. Hey, Liberty Rockers, this is Johnny Rocket from the Johnny Rocket Launchpad. Each week, I strive to bring you the best guests in talk radio. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad delivers weekly interviews of noteworthy politicians, economists, and activists. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is bringing the party to the Libertarian Party and launching ideas in your direction. Check it out at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com or find us on iTunes. Each show is action-packed, explicit, and a lot of fun. So join me at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com every week for the newest episode. Keep liberty alive and rock and roll. Hello, this is Chris Spangle, and I am here with Tim McGuire, the chairman of the Libertarian Party of Indiana. Tim, how are you? I'm doing great, Chris. And I want to be clear that this is a quasi-advertisement. Okay, that's why you're hearing this. Uh, you, you aren't actually paying me any money, but I agreed to advertise the state convention for the Indiana Party. When is the convention, and how can you go attend it? Great question. So the uh, the Indiana State Convention is May 4th and 5th. Uh, it's a Friday and Saturday. And uh, the, the best way to attend it is to uh, go to our website, lpin.org, uh, and look for the link for the, uh, the state convention. And we've got packages available right now. And you've got a very special guest, I hear, speaking. Yes, yes. On Saturday morning, uh, the Boss Hog of Liberty will be uh, leading one of the uh, uh, workshops. Uh, we're doing a lot of uh, training workshops uh, on Saturday morning. And uh, uh, the Boss Hog is going to be uh, uh, leading the activist training. And I've I've heard rumors that Rupert, our good friend Rupert, may be there, but that's that's early early talks, just rumors. You know, they, I've heard a little bit of whispers about that, but uh, nothing is confirmed yet. All right, nothing like putting rumors in an advertisement, Tim. Uh, now, the theme of this year's convention, I think, is a brilliant slogan. What uh, is it? Well, yeah, we decided uh, to uh, to basically declare to the world that. We are libertarians. See, so how can you miss a convention that is named We Are Libertarians? Now, this isn't WallCon. That's still a couple years away. But uh, I, I, I actually, it's we have to thank Christy Avery for that because the theme of the convention was left up to votes via dollars, and Christy Avery donated to have it be We Are Libertarians, the convention theme this year. So thank you to Christy for doing that. So the convention will be themed, We Are Libertarians. Now, why is it important to go to a convention? That's a great question. So obviously, the uh, the, fir- the first reason to go is uh, that's the place where we're going to be uh, nominating candidates. 
uh, and you know, kind of setting uh, uh, the direction for the for the next year. Um, so, if you know, you're interested in uh, actually, you know, getting libertarians elected to office, uh, you're interested in uh, having a voice on uh, who we make our candidates to be. That's the place to show up. This to is be. our version of the primary. This is our version of the primary. That's a great way. But uh, we don't make great... taxpayers pay for it. No, no, it's all self-funded. That's why your your convention package uh, will have a, a dollar cost to it when you sign up for it. But the other great reason to come is that, uh, and and I've been uh, very adamant about this this year, is that we're going to do a lot of training. Uh, for candidates, uh, for campaign managers, uh, for officers, and for activists. Uh, we're you're spending the whole morning. Uh, do, we're not bringing in any huge speakers uh, uh, in the morning. We're just doing a lot of uh, training uh, for those subjects. I always have a great time at these conventions. This will be my 10th, if you can believe it, my 10th Libertarian convention here in Indiana. Uh, I'm going to the national convention. That will be my fourth or fifth uh, third or fourth, maybe. But anyways, uh, I really do enjoy going to the LP conventions because even if you have issues with the party, uh, that's the best place to discuss them and yep. to get to meet a lot of like-minded people. And you listen to a lot of libertarian media and you'd think, boy, what a waste of time and what a bunch of kooks the libertarian party must be. And you go to a convention, and it's really just not that way, is it, Tim? No, and especially here in Indiana, uh, we we run a serious party, and we run a serious convention, and everyone there wants to be there and wants to be productive. Uh, and it's a great time, like, just like you said, it's a great time, and you, you come away with a feeling of purpose uh, for the libertarian movement. So don't believe everything you read on Facebook. Uh, yeah, I try not to believe anything I read on Facebook, <laughs> It's actually. all fake news. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I would highly advocate going to the Indiana Libertarian State Party Convention. I will be there on Saturday. Friday night, is it still cocktail hour? Yeah, Friday night's a cocktail hour, and we're going to be uh, uh, highlighting the candidates that are going to be up for uh, for nomination the next day at that co- uh, cocktail hour. Including the Secretary of State. Including the Secretary of State, which, as you know, Chris, is one of our most important races every four years. Why uh, is that, Tim? Well, uh, you know, according to Indiana state law, we have to get at least 2% in that race to stay on the ballot for the next four years. Um, and Mark Rutherford Rutherford is, is uh, has thrown his uh, uh, name in the uh, the hat for uh, to to run for uh, secretary of state, and his goal is, to, uh, is for us to get ten percent this year, which, uh, as you know, that would get us access to the primaries uh, in future years if we so choose. And data—that's the most important part. The thing that yep. in Indiana you don't register, you go and vote in the closed party primary for the Republicans, Democrats, or nonpartisan ballots. And so the Republicans and Democrats get a tremendous amount of data based on that. Uh, that is not the case for Libertarians. We have at least 100,000 baseline voters here in Indiana that we don't know who votes for us. We just don't have access to those people because we don't have that data. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I can find the data on who votes Republican and I can find the data on who votes uh, Democrat, but there is no data on who votes Libertarian because it's we're not in the primaries. It's not uh, something that anyone has access to. Wall listeners are very familiar with Mark Rutherford, easily the most qualified candidate to run for any libertarian office, in my opinion, uh, since I've joined the party 10 years ago. Uh, the other the convention that is taking place over July 4th weekend is the Libertarian Party Convention. If I want to go and vote at the national convention, how do I do that in, yeah. in my state party 
and Indiana specifically. Right, right. No, and and you brought it up earlier that you know there's a lot of people that are unhappy with the National Party, um, and, uh, and 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 the best way to affect change with the National Party is to show up to the National Convention and, and be a de- national delegate at the National Convention. So the way you do that is you show up to the state convention. Uh, and get uh, nominated and elected as a delegate from Indiana to go to the state uh, to, to to go to the national convention. We will vote on that uh, on Saturday at the state convention. You did that so professionally, while I was totally distracted by my coworkers mocking us behind your behind your head. Uh, yeah, it it is a chunk of money to go to the national convention, and it is a commitment. But it's even more fun than state conventions a lot of times because you're just meeting a lot of people involved in the libertarian movement. There's a ton of libertarian organizations that are there. Uh, Your favorite libertarian podcasters will be there. So I highly recommend thinking about going to that as well uh, because we all have problems with the National Party, but it's certainly not going to be solved by bitching about it unless you actually show up and vote. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, the the direction of the party is uh, decided by those who show up. Uh, but as you said too, it's a great time. I, you know, if you if you want to meet other people in the liberty movement that are excited and trying to do something, the the, the conventions are are the best place to go. Yeah. All right. We've said a lot here. We've included a lot of information. LPIN.org. If you want to go to the convention, which you should, uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, we've had. We've had some issues over the past, and and at certain points we've criticized even the state party. But listen to how they're treating us now. The convention is named after We Are Libertarians. (laughs) Okay, so if you support We Are Libertarians, show up, support the party. Uh, The business meeting is open to everyone, correct? Yeah, you can at least attend it. Yeah, you can at least attend the business meeting. I I should point out, though, that if you you want to uh, be a delegate uh, to the state convention, one, you should probably try to check in with your county party and and get named as a delegate. But you also want to make sure that your membership is up to date. Uh, which uh, you can go to lpin.org for that uh, and just click on the membership button. And if, you don't, if you're not a uh, current member, you can uh, update your membership or join the uh, party there uh, to actually vote on anything on Saturday. But the Saturday business meeting is free uh, to go to any of the workshops or hang out with us on Friday night. Uh, you, uh, th- that's what the packages are for. Yeah, the party pays for the hall, and it, there's several thousands of dollars worth of costs that go into one of these conventions. And that's why there is a cost to attend the conventions. And uh, even the national convention, there's a lot of people, well, this should be open and free to the public. It's like, no, we're a private organization. Uh, and we're throwing in, uh, you know, some uh, meals with that. You know, we, yeah, we, we, got, we got lunch and uh, dinner included with those packages. And I would even say if you are curious, then show up that Saturday for the business meeting, meet some people, uh, or Friday night. You know, that's free and open to the public. So even if you're a Republican or a Democrat or an independent undecided and you're a weird Libertarians listener, then just show up to some of the free stuff and just introduce yourself to some people and say hi. So we're definitely excited for the convention season. If you almost every state party has a convention uh, that is that takes place in March, April and May, uh, a lot of the state conventions. So please check out your your home county, state and of 10 the national convention all right tim mcguire final thoughts anything else that you'd like to pitch uh just i encourage everyone if you're in the liberty movement please join the libertarian party because the uh the only way that we can get better is if we can continue to grow our fundraising uh and our membership uh and we need people like your listeners to to join the cause cool thanks so much
Thank you. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. I am your host, Chris Spangle. We bring you all of the irreverence modern politics deserves while putting people before political parties. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective with the goal of leaving you better informed. Please be sure to rate us and review us on iTunes. That's really important. That tells iTunes that we're a show that you like, and that will put you put us up at the top of the charts. Uh, like us on Facebook. Subscribe on Patreon at WeAreLibertarians.com. In exchange for supporting our program, we give you all kinds of bonus content and free stuff. This show is crowdsourced, so you can send us news with the hashtag WALnews or in our Facebook group and Discord channel, which you can find at WeAreLibertarians.com. We're always taking your questions and comments via email at editor at WeAreLibertarians.com. Please be warned that this show is raw, unedited, authentic, so the language is sometimes strong and offensive. Oops, that was a hard cut. See, I'm experimenting, Brian Nichols, with uh, <laughs> with live intros this episode. I got a cool new device called the Stream Deck, thanks to uh, Craig, De- uh, yeah, Craig DeCosta. Um, for he he, I think it was a Valentine's Day gift. We're in love, and uh, so I'm not good at it yet, but we'll get there uh, together. You, me, and uh, Harry when he's here. Brian, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I was just speaking when we were doing the the pre-show. Like we went from eighty some odd degrees on Saturday, and it's like forty degrees and miserable now. And I I just want I just want this weather to decide if it's spring or not. But otherwise, I mean, besides sounding like I'm a prepubescent teenager, I'm doing pretty good. Do you have doing allergies? Oh, I I have terrible allergies. I was one of those kids uh, back when I was uh, growing up where I'd have to get uh, weekly allergy shots, one in each Ooh. arm, uh, for like a year and a half and I hated it. I hated everything about it. Wow, that is intense. <laughs> <laughs> and it did, I, I mean I'm sure it did something to help it. I just don't feel it nowadays because I'm I'm an old like really just depressed person when it comes to this kind of weather because I'm like I always feel like I get sick. So, I mean, I'm sure I, if I didn't have them, it'd be a lot worse. But, hey, I can't complain. I mean, I'm in the city of brotherly love, right? So two two years ago, I was sitting on my back porch, and I was reading on vacation in July, and then all of a sudden it felt like something was attacking me in the face. And I went inside, and I was like, what was that? Was that allergies? And then all of a sudden I've had allergies ever since. So I have <laughs> – I, I, my best friend is Claritin D in this, in this season – you got slapped in the face with allergies. Just all of a sudden, it caught the allergies. All right. So many of you are asking in the live chat for our Patreon subscribers, where's Harry? Fear not. Harry has not been kicked off the show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have not fired Harry. Uh, Harry has not quit. Harry is being a dad tonight and helping his lovely wife and daughter. So he will be here Thursday along. Uh, well, I haven't actually asked that person that are coming on, so I won't tease them. But Harry will be here Thursday uh, for the Thursday show. With me is Brian Nichols, who has the hottest new podcast on the We Are Libertarians network, The Brian Nichols Show. And Brian, it's going really well, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we so far we're 15 episodes in, um, and I, I'm really surprised at the positive feedback that we've gotten. Um, so, I mean, for those of you who haven't had the chance to listen to the show yet, so basically the entire premise of The Brian Nichols Show is uh, to educate, enlighten, and inform with the main goal of bringing people in from all different means of political uh, thought, uh, philosophy, 
and the likes and to really come together, have real conversations. And if even if we don't necessarily come away agreeing with each other, it, it's it's important for us to try to understand where the other side is coming from, because the reality is, is that we're never going to see a hundred percent perfect world where our ideas are a hundred percent represented. Um, so with that being said, we have to go out of our way to try and find individuals who we can agree with maybe 70 or 60 or 80% of the time, and then find those real key issues we agree on to, uh, really promote that going forward. So we have a, a strong bond on those, you know, those very key issues. Um, but no, as, as for like the show itself, we've had a lot of great guests. Um, I had uh, William F. Buckley O'Reilly. He's the uh, the tra- uh, chairman pro tem for the uh, Federalist Party of America. I uh, had Austin Peterson on, uh, Alicia Dern, who's running for uh, the LNC chair. Uh, I had former White House, uh, White House policy advisor Dean Clancy on my show. Um, and then most recently we had uh, Larry Sharp, who's running for New York State governor. Um, Stephen Katowski from the Washington Free Beacon to discuss uh, gun rights. And uh, last week we had Jason Stapleton from the uh, the Jason Stapleton program. So uh, I'm, I'm really excited. You know, since uh, since January, we've been doing the show. And I mean, it, I'm really appreciative of the feedback and kudos to uh, all you. Uh, we are Libertarians group members there who've who've helped share the show. Um, you know, I definitely wouldn't have been able to uh, to get the show off and running at such a fast pace uh, like we have already. So, I mean, cheers to you guys. Thanks so much for the help. Um, but yeah, with that being said, I really am looking forward to what the rest of this year has and and going forward. Yeah, we have several hundred of uh, several hundred listeners to that show, and I'd like to have several thousand. So please go to WeAreLibertarians.com, get the link. You can download the show there, add it in your podcatcher. Uh, he does a great job. Every Friday we release an episode. He releases an episode. I just upload it, uh, and uh, it's it's really great <laughs> stuff. And you you have when you say you're committed to ideological diversity, you mean it. And you've had socialists on the show. You had an environmental <laughs> debate with. I mean, that person was wild. <laughs> I mean, and that's the thing is like it's it's real life. I mean, we. I think this is just one issue that libertarians find themselves in and is that we get stuck in the mindset that our Facebook groups are real life. And um, when we go out into the real world, all of a sudden we're slapped in the face of reality that, that, well, people don't agree with me when it comes to man-made climate change versus climate uh, skepticism. And people don't understand what I mean when I say taxation is theft. Why? Why do people not understand that public schools are, are a terrible detriment to our society and that we need to privatize everything. And the reality is because a lot of people just don't, they've never experienced a position like that that's presented to them in an intellectual slash easy to digest manner. So, I mean, that's why I wanted that show to take place because I think that having those real conversations and, and making it more comfortable for us to understand where the other side's coming from. So when we have those discussions, we don't look at those people like aliens and be like, where are they coming from? Why don't they understand when I say I'm talking about Mises and Hayek and they don't understand what I'm talking about? Why? I think that's so beneficial to us because now we actually can try to speak a common language. And then maybe even though we don't agree 100 percent, we can just find those little areas we can agree and then really focus on those. So that's why I've made it a point to make the show very intellectually diverse 
just so we can have those conversations in an open manner, really. That's the main goal. Yeah, and I think the reason that you know this show catches, We Are Libertarians catches on, Jason Stapleton has a big audience, you're catching on, uh, you know, Ben Shapiro to, he calls himself a libertarian, he's a libertarian on a lot of stuff, but like the thing Foreign about- policy is garbage. Uh, absolute trash. And here's the thing, <laughs> there's so many uh, new libertarians- in the last two years, who call themselves libertarians, but then the first foreign policy crisis, they're like, "Oh, that means that's libertarians are non-interventionist." Uh, no, I don't want to be that. Well, then you're not a libertarian. Like to me, a lit one litmus test of libertarianism is: Do you support militarism, hawkishness, uh, intervention in foreign countries? Because that just breeds big government, uh, which we'll talk about Syria in a moment. But it, it is funny to see all the young like Gen Z college age libertarian groups start fighting with each other because you know <laughs> like Turning Point USA they all came out for the strikes in Syria and then all these all these young libertarians who haven't been in the movement that long are like wait a minute you're not libertarian it's like yeah conservatives and republicans are conservatives and republicans just because they say they're libertarian their policies are not so you have to be really careful but it is it is interesting to see all these new libertarians pop up but my point the reason I think that a lot of these shows are catching on is because we're relevant. You know, this show is highly relevant. Uh, I love Ben Shapiro because he talks about that day's news, and you get a perspective. Like I think his James Comey breakdown was incredibly ridiculous, which I'll 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 break down elsewhere. Uh, but it, 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 we're covering stuff that people are talking about, and. I look at a lot of the feeds of other libertarian podcasts, and I don't say this to bash them. I say this like, please understand that if you record a month in advance, like your content's going to be stale and your numbers are going to go down. Like, People want to know, how do I explain this to my friends? And I think you do a great job of that. Jason does a great job of that. Uh, I don't, I, I candidly, to, I don't listen to a lot of libertarian podcasts just because I don't want to. I'm usually listening to like Council on Foreign Relations events or Cato Institute events, or like these long two-hour boring subjects. So I just don't have a lot of time to fit other shows in. Um, but yeah, kudos to you. You're doing a great job with it. Speaking of the news cycle, uh, I'm going to start recording more shows in the Chris Spangle Show feed. Uh, I broke down the Paul Ryan retirement and uh, about 20 minute 20 minutes breaking that down how what does the what if you're a libertarian what do you care about Paul Ryan retiring well i explain why i also explained the ramifications for the election at the end of the year but so i recorded this on a thursday night or i recorded it fr early friday morning and i didn't get a chance to actually put it out till friday evening by the time i actually put it out the news cycle had moved on. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but it is just, it's getting insane how fast the news cycle's moving now. Well, I mean, it's because we have a, such a short attention span as a consumer of the news that, I mean, think about when you go onto any social media platform, you go to, to Facebook or you go to, to Twitter. Twitter's my preferred medium just because I, I, I find it much more uh, easy to use. Because uh, I really use that, again, for my own news consumption. And one of the first things I do is I, I go to the trending uh, portion of Twitter. And I just like to see what's happening. I mean, that's how I learned that Lee Ermey died. Um, the guy who was from Full Metal Jacket, the the voice from the, the green toy soldier from Toy Story, people might know. I mean, he, he passed away, I think it was just this past week, which, feel, again, it feels like a month ago now because right. it's so... 
it's just we're so overwhelmed with news. Um, but it's because as consumers, we want to see things in a manner that are easy to digest, that are are quick and to the point. And, and at the same point in time, we want to be informed. I just I think and I and correct me if, if you feel differently, Chris, but I I come to the conclusion that in that type of environment where we're getting news so quickly, we end up not being able to digest the news in a manner that is objective. It, it seems to be much more of the sexy stuff. And then we move on before we have a chance to really establish what the news really was, like what was fact, what was rumor. And before that, we actually get the real information, we're a week away. And and by that point, I mean, a week away in today's news cycle is like um, it might as well be four years. Well, what's that saying that the that lies can travel around the world before the truth can get its pants on? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and that was like what 1980, 1970, and now here we are in 2018, where I can tweet something in Philadelphia, you pick it up in Indiana, you retweet it. Someone like let's say Jason Stapleton in in California retweets it. All of a sudden, it's across the United States in less than like literally 10 seconds. Well, a great example of that is the Barbara Bush story. Barbara Bush is alive. He is not dead, guys. And so people kept sharing today that Barbara Bush had died, but she's you know she's basically on hospice care. So. Her time, sadly for the Bush family, is limited, uh, and I think she is a total ball buster. Uh, but obviously, you know, her time is short. But it's she's getting picked off left and right by fake news sites. I I saw, uh, like that's a legitimate fake news story. Like there's no reason absolutely for anybody to post that article that Barbara Bush died, except for you to click on it and then click on one of the ads that you see on the sidebar. So that's like a legitimate fake news story. Like Alex Jones is warped opinion. He's not fake news. Uh, so I think there's a distinction that we're kind of losing losing in all of this. Uh, but yeah, I've, I'm going to do more of the Chris Spangle shows where it's just me sitting down in front of a microphone because A, I want to practice that. And B, there's a lot of stuff that if I wait until Thursday, uh, we're not going to get to the Comey interview today in, in, in depth in the way that I'd like to do it in a way that I think actually like gives you information, for instance. And if I do it Thursday, by the time you listen to it Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday-ish, it's going to be so old, <laughs> you won't even listen to it. So so uh, I'm going to, instead of overwhelming this feed with more information, I'm going to take some of those and, and put it in smaller chunks. Um, just as a, as a customer service to you. Uh, speaking of fake news, this is uh, obviously... Not top of mind, but have you heard about Sean Hannity? Sean Hannity, (laughs) Brian, is apparently being accused of unethical journalism. (laughs) So that leads to the initial question being, when was Sean Hannity ever an ethical journalist? I don't want you to be alarmed, but Sean (laughs) Hannity might not not be the ethical beacon that we all thought he was. (laughs) Uh, and I think this is really kind of instructive for our times. Um, the, uh, the Dakota Davis says a daily podcast, the libertarian Ben Shapiro, i.e. the Chris Spangle show. Maybe, maybe one day. Um, so I still have a job and a life allegedly. Uh, so <laughs> Sean Hannity came out and, uh, said last night, I did not have lawyerly relations with that Michael Cohn. So Michael Cohn is the lawyer that we've told you about. He is Donald Trump's fixer who had his office raided over the Stormy Daniels affair. 
And yesterday and today there were court proceedings around the the Michael Cohn case where essentially Michael Cohn was defending himself and also Donald Trump was also saying, I'd like to get a look at those documents before the federal government does. And a judge said, that's not how this works, Donald. Uh, and they asked Michael Cohn, how many, how many, uh, if you were to guess, Brian, pretend you probably haven't already read this because uh, <laughs> you're very well informed. If I were to say to you, Michael Cohn, a New York attorney, he's Donald Trump's lawyer, he deals in real estate, how many clients do you think he would have? I mean, I think anybody would, would guess you, you hear a lawyer um, in general, you know, what, if, if they're one lawyer, maybe like at one time, 30 to 40, you think of a big lawyer like that, I mean, a well-known lawyer, like 50 to 60, maybe, I'm going to guess. So he had three clients. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he had seven other that he does consultants. And the the one that he, you know, obviously Donald Trump, there's one other person, and then there was an unnamed third client in this uh, document. And the prosecution said, we want to know who that third person is. You can't have an unnamed client. And they said, we'd really not like to tell you because that person is going to be embarrassed. That was almost verbatim. They, and the judge said, no, tell us who it is. And they said, okay, it's Sean Hannity. And apparently there were audible gasps in the room because of the horrifying notion that Sean Hannity was using the lawyer of Donald Trump. I, apparently that's shocking to people. Uh, so Sean Hannity is obviously the ultimate Donald Trump fanboy. And he's been rewarded handsomely in the ratings. He's He's got like three million viewers and everyone else has like a million. He's, he's the highest paid news talk personality on tv so uh, sad. yeah i know 36 he, million dollars a year he makes yeah he's he's super well paid uh as you should be if you've got those ratings sean hannity's kind of the last man standing out of all of a generation of talk radio show hosts and tv show hosts on fox now uh which is sad because and you kind of guessed it because sean was younger but sean has always been in my opinion the least intellectually deep you know, as far as oh, talk absolutely. radio guys go, he's definitely been the biggest uh, tool in the uh, drawer. <laughs> I mean, everything he says, it's it's all superficial. Right. Um, there's nothing of substance behind what he's saying, so long as it's being echoed back by people who can give him something in return, and usually it's something in return being ratings. Right. Um, I mean, you you look at. Through the entire two, uh, Tea Party revolution from like 2010 through 2000, I say dare 16. I mean, Sean Hannity was like one of the the strongest advocates for the entire Tea Party movement. And suddenly in 2015, when Donald Trump becomes the the front runner for the GOP nomination for president, who hardly represents any true Tea Party ideals or principles. Hannity jumps in the bandwagon because he's good friends with, with Trump, and then he he is seemingly embraced this this populist narrative now because again it's giving him ratings. And I mean, I totally can understand when you want to get the ratings and you want to see the, the 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 more revenue coming in, you know, for for your efforts trying to to bring this new audience in. But you can't then turn around and say that you're an intellectual beacon for conservatism because <laughs> the opposite is is the truth. That's why I think somebody like Ben Shapiro does catch on. It's because the previous generation, void. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he you can tell there's a tremendous amount of intellectual firepower in that little tiny brain of his. Oh, absolutely. His like five foot four, hundred and twenty pound body of a Jewish lawyer. I mean, yeah. he's got 
he's got a big old brain up there. Yeah, he's he's very smart. Uh, I just wish that on the t- on the uh, actual live stream, they wouldn't put the video so close on his face. It's disturbing if you watch it on YouTube <laughs> like I do. Uh, I mean, I mean, like Brian, it is the whole screen is his head. It's way too up close. Uh, <laughs> So so Hannity came out and said, you know, I've never given him a dime. I've never been submitted. I've never had an invoice sent to me. He's not my lawyer. I just asked about some real estate advice at one point. Um, I didn't think that this rose to the level that I ought to disclose this when I was covering all of this because Hannity's been on TV. He's had Michael Cohen on his show. He recently has been covering, uh, in his words, the farce of the raid, even going as far as... Uh, was it Newt Gingrich on some show, and I don't know if it was his or the five, basically said it was like the Gestapo raiding oh, Michael yeah. Cohen's office, which it was not. It was the, the Gestapo didn't have legal legal precedence for the things that they did. They just did it. Uh, so it's definitely not the Gestapo, but Hannity's basically been saying it's along those lines, and he's never disclosed that he had any kind of relationship with everybody, and so people on the left and media matters and that type are outraged by this, and they want him fired for it. Uh, and Laura Ingram the other day, actually in the transition between their shows, goes, "Thanks for taking the heat off me, Sean." Uh, <laughs> and that's not a joke. She said that. Um, but I'm guessing media matters want Sean Hannity fired any day of the week, and for independent-thinking people like us, we look at Sean Hannity like like he is an opinion journalist. He's, you know, as he said, an advocacy journalist in a New York Times article. I mean, he's entertainment around politics. He's not somebody that you go to for the news necessarily. Well, not somebody you should go to the news for, <laughs> but unfortunately, I know a lot of people do. Right. Um, they look at Sean Hannity as like in their world an ob- uh, an objective source of news because it's it's fitting to their confirmation bias so they they look at the the world through this conservative and unfortunately nowadays trumpian lens and when they are fed this information of the news as presented by sean hannity it 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 helps them reaffirm these confirmation biases and they're like oh well he's an objective journalist right he's objective to my side um when they don't know what the word objective means um but i mean when when as you said like when you look at the average person like your average independent person you look at sean hattie he is a conservative talking head like there is there is nothing that could really change that reality i mean he's a fox news pundit who's had a show at nine o'clock or ten o'clock for for well over over a decade um he's never i mean i don't think he's ever tried to position himself as a, a non-biased objective journalist so I, I don't i really don't see the outrage like i get that it's it's a little skeevy that michael cohen was his lawyer and he was the unnamed um the unnamed client but like i mean honestly what's the big deal i i really don't see why we're having such outrage over something that is so trivial and and really, it it speaks nothing to his objectivity or his ethic his his ethics whatsoever. Well, well, that's what I mean. They they've skewered Fox News ethics forever. I personally don't watch Fox News. I will sometimes tune into Tucker because Tucker has uh, some independent things to say, sometimes libertarian leaning things to say. Uh, he questioned the Syria chemical attacks, for instance. Yeah, Tucker was good on the Syria, right? Sure. But 
I don't tune into Fox News or CNN thinking that I'm going to get informed. You know, I read I read news articles or listen to podcasts at this point. I I think you can get much better talk. I just don't think that anybody in this audience probably sits there and watches Fox News in the first place uh, because oh, no. we, we already understand their goal, their stated goal is to make you, to, to entertain conservatives, you know, and it, CNN. Well, and, and to take it a step further, and I think this is one thing that's important for people on the left to understand is that it's one thing to say, you watch Fox News, you think you're getting objective news from them, you're just getting stupid conservative bias. And it's like, oh, well, you're not wrong, but like you can't then sit there and then go watch CNN and, and claim you're holier than thou because you're watching CNN, which is supposed to be a, a quote unquote objective uh, news station. And I think that's the part where a lot of the uh, the outrage machine dies down is because a lot of the people who are raising up this Sean Hannity ethical dilemma are are the ones who would in a heartbeat go and put Brian Stelter on as some beacon of of you know intellectual intellectual honesty or or Jim Sciato or or George Stephanopoulos and they'll be like well look at these I mean Chris Cuomo and CNN it's like no these guys aren't objective they're they're hardcore leftists who are on a quote unquote independent news station and they're using that that uh, the premise that they are nonpartisan to then push a partisan narrative in a sneaky way which I think is actually worse than what Fox is doing because Fox has gotten to the point they don't even pretend right. to not be conservative. But CNN pretends to be objective when they're they're quite the opposite. It, it reminds me of the 2000s when you had all the left's hand wringing about the right's outrage machine, and we're there. Like you're at the point now where Starbucks on Twitter is being labeled as you know a, a race a systemically racist company. You've got Bernie Sanders who is who says the truth on the 50th anniversary of MLK's death which is that Barack Obama didn't do enough for down ballot candidates in the Democratic Party he was called a racist and he had to apologize like you look at it and you go you're never uh, going to be satisfied with anybody that doesn't agree with you completely before the show I was having an argument with a friend of mine Wilson he is a uh, a nearly 80 gay democrat here in town very hardcore d uh, and was basically saying, you know, like, oh, white men, white men, white men. And I'm like, Wilson, you're a white man. Like, stop with the white man <laughs> politics. Like, they ne- they're we're never going to be good enough unless we all just capitulate and agree with them and toe the party line. And yes, 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 yes. And so while I do think that Sean Hannity made an error and he should have disclosed this, I would have. I mean, I'm too honest on this show about <laughs> everything. Uh, and... He made a mistake, but at the end of the day, they just the the outrage from the left just pushes and pushes and pushes and pushes to the point that you just don't care anymore. You just go, well, I'm gonna let's, I'm gonna start supporting Sean Hannity, uh, you know. And I think Meghan McCain actually made a really good point on the View, and then she made it again on this week, where we will pe- play this uh, clip, you know, this week with George Snuffleupagus. Uh, <laughs> So Meghan McCain, John McCain's daughter, basically had this to say about the retirement of Paul Ryan. 
streets. I think it would be an absolute political catastrophe. I will say when you're talking about people like Paul Ryan, though, the vilification of Paul Ryan fascinates me because it happened for such a long period of time. He was someone who's going to throw grandmothers over the cliff. During the 2012 election, people were saying things like he would take away women's birth control. And when you vilify a man like Paul Ryan, you can't deny that it led to the rise of President Trump because I think a lot of voters looked at this and said, if this nice Wisconsin Jack Kemp conservative is just trying to do good things on Capitol Hill, if he's the enemy and he's awful, then we'll send in a guy like but President that's, Trump. But that's Sorry, my mic was off. Uh, I think that is a very astute observation and one that we've made on the show here in the past. When the binders full of women thing is being mocked and uh, Mitt Romney is being mocked and he's he hates women and he's a misogynist and Paul Ryan is a racist... Uh, then you just go, and now and now we're to the point that Bernie Sanders is a racist and Starbucks is racist. You just go, okay, uh, I'm I, I'm I've had enough. Here's here's the torture button. <laughs> so two things. Number one, literally as we're on air, Barbara Bush died. So oh, that did happen just now. That's too bad. Yeah. So everything we just said about her not being dead, we're wrong. She's she's um, passed. So away. we're not fake news. Ninety-two years old. Uh, yeah, obviously. A wonderful love story with her husband, George H.W. Bush, uh, who killed Kennedy. Uh, but more on that in a different episode. <laughs> yes. Um, but no, when you look at um, going to what Megan McCain was saying about Paul Ryan, she I, I usually don't agree with her politics. I mean, she does. She's kind of come sort of out as libertarian ish in some regards, much, much different than her father, except for his foreign policy. But um but her point that she made about uh, Paul Ryan, how how vilified he's been, I mean, she's quite literally pointing out the exact reason that we have Trump right now and the, the exact reason why there is such a polar dichotomy in the, the political specter in, in our country. Because when you look at how they how, – how the media approach the likes of a George W. Bush or a John McCain or a Mitt Romney or a Paul Ryan, I mean they, they labeled them as the, the – almost – I mean, I dare say like antichrist level of, you know, they're like she said, pushing grandma off a cliff or, or Mitt Romney saying, you know, 48 percent of Americans will never vote for a Republican because they're you know dependent on on government. And they, they make these these dare I say, I mean, moderate to independent leaning uh, Republicans to be monsters. And then they get a guy like Trump, who I mean, literally is the most bombastic, um, you know, non-principled populist candidate that the GOP's had in in decades and they try to use the exact same tactics against Trump the problem is that we look at how they treated Mitt Romney and they, how they treated Paul Ryan and we're like mm. no okay. like <laughs> you, it, we, you you've lost your standing you've lost the, the 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 high ground to make your arguments because you've lambasted these dare I mean I would say they're decent people in their in their personal lives that you you can't use these same arguments against uh, Donald Trump because you've wasted you've wasted your argument that you've made in the first place. So I would say that by and large, most libertarians, especially libertarian men, uh, who, who I'm speaking about specifically here, libertarians think about politics. You don't become a libertarian because it's like the cool hip thing and you're going to win. You become a libertarian because you've thought about politics. You've thought about issues of equality and justice. And it's not just about lower taxes, but I mean, for me, fixing inequality and achieving equality and 
correcting injustice, correcting things like ending the drug war to to end the annihilation of the black community. Somebody who does, I do believe that white privilege exists at some level. Do I think that you need to use massive government programs to fix it? No. But I think when you have 100% of every black friend that you have and every black public figure ever alive today basically saying, yeah, I get treated pretty poorly by some people. Like, it, it does exist. There are people who are in the white identity group who treat people of minority uh, classes uh, with racism and bigotry, and they do have that motivation. That There is no denial that that exists. Look at our policing system. Look at our criminal justice system. That is a very real problem that our society has to fix. It's a complete injustice that the black community is being annihilated by drug laws. It was set out to do that, according to Ehrlichman, mm-hmm. uh, who was Nixon's chief of staff, who flat out said we wanted to criminalize being black and criminalize being a hippie so we could win the 72 election. And look where we're at with the drug war. Uh, so, But at the same time, I hold these values of wanting to treat everyone with respect, wanting to treat everyone with value, but you're shoving... I, I just keep getting shoved and shoved and shoved and reminded, like, it's almost the exact opposite thing where when you're constantly reminded of your identity with with negative connotations, you go, oh, I guess I'm part of that class then. And, you know, I'm I'm never, ever going to advocate for anything other than full equality of everyone because that's what I truly believe. But you go, all right, so putting me down and subjugating white cis males – isn't going to help you achieve equality. It's just going to make people who aren't as thoughtful as me swing back the other way in a direction that is an equal hell. Like, to me, Starbucks being labeled as racist when they're one of the most progressive companies in history is a hell, okay? (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. The Atlantic editor being Twitter is hell. But by the same token, Jim Crow laws, don't ask, don't tell, uh marriage laws that keep blacks and whites or gays from marrying, that's a hell. That's a discrimination. Like, discrimination is wrong, and I, I think that the the more extreme that the left goes with a lot of this, the larger the pendulum swing, and we don't want that, because that's what we're, that's why the pendulum has swung so far towards identity politics. You know, and so there has to be a nice, there has to be a middle ground where we're all having a conversation and respecting each other and trying to find ways to solve inequalities in our society. Because I don't think there's a lot of people on the left, right, center, libertarian, whatever spectrum that don't look at the criminal justice system and go, yeah, we need to fix that. You know, with school shootings, the red flag laws, everybody agrees that's a good idea. Why aren't we talking about that? Well, we're too busy defending our positions and blaming the other guys, the bad guys. So uh, I think the harder that the the intersectional politics crowd pushes the more you know i just this it's really hit home for me when my dad said he wanted a confederate flag like my parents mm. grew up teaching me like my mom's goal was to make sure that we didn't grow up racist because she had grew, grown up in a racist community and uh Frankly, with racist parents, I mean, she was telling me recently, she's like, I never, ever wanted you to ever think the way that my my parents did. And so I really pushed that. And uh, to to get to a point where it's like, 
we're just consumed with it. When our generation, I really feel like, was so close to to ending the identity politics. I don't know if I'm making any sense, Brian, but I just feel like oh, constantly shoving everyone's identity in everyone's face isn't any better than the opposite of you know using laws to keep people down. It just it's it's driving me out of my mind. And like this yeah. is. A, a great well, example mean, with with all this that's I, going on. I think I think the, the the greater point you're making is that at the end of the day, the the way that we approach the differences in our society, be they religious, be they racial, um, you know, sexual, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, instead of using uh, using a means of of destruction to try and take others down, to then in our minds elevate ourselves. We should instead be trying to open up the ability for people to uh, appropriately identify themselves and and to express themselves and to not fear that backlash. And to the larger point, I believe, with regards to government, is that the government is the ultimate tool to oppress people. Right. I mean, I I've, you're, you're mentioning Starbucks, and that happened right here in my backyard, quite literally. So it was over uh, on, I think, 13th and Chestnut. And um, which for those of you in Philly is is towards Center City Um, and to label a company like Starbucks, which is, as you pointed out, one of the most progressive companies in America. I mean, I went to get Starbucks coffee today before I had a meeting and I was I was greeted by a a woman with like sleeve tattoos, a, a lip ring down to her chest. Like, you know what? Good for her and good for Starbucks for saying we're going to hire people who don't fit traditional norms. Be yourself. They have that prerogative. Yeah, exactly. They have that prerogative as a company and that's their company culture. Um, and and yeah, people have the right to to boycott Starbucks based on what happened here in Philadelphia with the, the two African-American men being asked to, to leave because they didn't which, purchase anything. Which was not a great situation. No, <laughs> I mean, it, it was, it was yeah, definitely it was, a, it was definitely inappropriate. But let's say let's say that one individual was racially profiling these two men, not the entire company. And that, I think, is where the, the loss of individualism in our country, in our politics, leads us to these places where we're labeling all white men, all Starbucks, all Democrats, all the left, all the right, all libertarians. Like, libertarians are way worse at it than anybody else sometimes. It's like, well, James Weeks danced naked on stage, all libertarians are a waste of time. It's like, okay, you're a collectivist. You're just no better than any of these other identitarians. Like the, the, the James Weeks dancing on stage definitely didn't really uh, help the party too much in PR. Of course it, <laughs> it of course it didn't, but it's it didn't help because libertarians and libertarian curious people don't go, "Oh, that one individual is an idiot." They right. go, "Oh, libertarians can't be taken seriously." You know, if this store manager acted and i haven't really dived deep into the into the details of this to know one way or the other but i have, from what i have read and watched it was definitely a situation where they were being racially profiled um so i mean from this is just from my reading of it and i i did actually i have a good friend who's in the the philadelphia police department so i wanted to reach out to him i i got his his perspective and basically what he said happened um from the police perspective was that you had these two African-American guys who were waiting for a friend and they decided to wait at this Starbucks. And when they were sitting there, one of them asked the store manager if he could use the restroom. And the store manager said, no, the restroom is is actually only permitted for people who are um, store customers. I peed, said, oh. I peed in a Starbucks 
right by there in Philly when I went to DC. And uh, I didn't buy anything, and I got to use the restroom. So, yeah, so, so, I mean, that part right there is probably where the issue lies. But, I mean, looking at from a greater libertarian standpoint, it's like, okay, if if the company's private property rules or their private their private company rules were that you aren't allowed to use our facilities unless you're a, a paying customer, I get that. And I would hope that would be universally applied across all the company. But also from that standpoint – I support the right for people to say, hey, that seems like racial profiling. We have the right to boycott this company or this particular store versus if it's the government doing it. I mean, you can only boycott to a certain extent because there's no other government you can go to. There's no other you know, USA uh, Dunkin' Donuts you can go to versus the, the USA that was segregating people. I mean, at the end of the day, you live in the United States. Whereas Starbucks, I mean, you have your local coffee companies you can go to. You can do, go to Dunkin' Donuts and you name the, the coffee joint. So that's why I would say, you know, when we look at the free market, we have much a much more uh, able remedy to – Try and solve these these negative instances of either it's discrimination or or what have you because we have the marketplace to then look for other alternatives that would best fit our worldview and then support that with our dollars. Whereas with the government, there is no alternative. There is no real uh, remedy to to protest these injustices because you're going to either a be put down by the government itself because it's its own policies, or B, you're going to face years and years of of you know trying to work the system, to work with politicians or or the the courts, and to to maybe 20 years down the road finally see something change. Whereas I'm sure what happened here in Philadelphia, that's going to make a big change uh, in 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 the Starbucks culture and how they train people overnight. So I mean that right there just shows how much better the marketplace is and reacting to these issues and that's why the government shouldn't be given these this much power and this much ability to dictate what is quote-unquote right and wrong to the extent that it's actually making more issues down the road than it's it's solving things yeah and i reckon and i guess i'll i'll end on this before we move on to syria i would just say that I know that I enjoy certain privileges. You have tall privilege, for instance. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the stuff in the top shelf, that's all for me, my six-foot-six glory. You, I'll tell the story about you on the treadmill or on the stair-stepper. <laughs> Your tall so, privilege uh, caught, caught you a listener. Yeah, I did. So um, I was actually telling Chris beforehand for the, uh, the behind-the-scenes listeners here um, that I was at my gym and uh, I used the stair mill because I used to play football back uh, back when I was growing up, and I, I had pretty bad knee injury. So like running on a treadmill and stuff, it uh, it hurts my my knee. So I do low impact on the stair mill, and stair mills are pretty high up. But add that with my six foot six Sasquatch uh, stature, and I'm looking out over the gym, I see this guy sitting at a a bench, and he's like looking on his phone, and I saw him watching the Brian Nichols, or he had like the Brian Nichols Show podcast pulled up, and I saw my logo. I was like, no way. So I ended up, I, when I finished up my workout, I went over to him and I was like, I see you're listening to the Brian Nichols show. And he goes, yeah, I am. It's a good show. And I was like, yeah, I know. I, it, that's me. And he's like, what? No way. And I was like, what are the odds that here at my random gym over in greater Philadelphia that I'm going to find some dude that actually listened to my show? Um, but yeah, we, we, we chatted for a little bit and then he went in his way. And it's, it, that's my tall privilege. I mean, yeah. 
that's that's something that I had to live with every day, being a tall man, being well, able to see things that you shorties don't get to see. Yeah, I think uh, everybody has some level of privilege. I mean, uh, for certain things, it's like everybody has some level of intelligence for something. I'm terrible at math, but there are CPAs, hopefully some that I can call uh, between midnight and now to file my taxes. <laughs> I am I am functionally illiterate when it comes to math. Okay, but oh, when I'm it, right there, yeah, but when it comes to talking politics, I'm good at that kind of stuff. But I, I do recognize that uh, I have had advantages that a lot of other people have not, and uh, I feel that it is part of my responsibility. Somebody who does have the ability to speak out, who did get a head start, you know, because of the family that I was born into, because of the skin, color of my skin, uh, and we didn't have uh, 400 years of slavery. Uh, it is part of my duty to speak out, and that's why I do shows like The Cost, for instance. But I want people to be raised up to my level. I'm not. It, Tahanishi Coates says the only way to solve the problem is to tear out, to tear down every bit of whiteness in our culture. And brother, that ain't gonna happen. That's just not gonna happen. You're never gonna get like. What does that even mean? You know, it's so abstract. And that's the kind of stuff that the the Twitterati crowd comes up with. That you just go. Okay, well, all you're doing is being condescending, and it's never going to work. And so I just find like the Starbucks debate, and I just go, "Man, we are, <laughs> we are, we are headed for hell if we continue down this path." Uh, but you know, Brian, I think maybe the solution is a few good gas attacks on the United States, uh, <laughs> because you watch these clips uh, of Syria with the gas attacks, and you go. Okay, that's real injustice. That's not get, not getting let into a bathroom. It's not appropriate to like I got into the bathroom and that guy didn't get into the bathroom. Let's say all things were equal and it is because of the color of his skin. That's wrong. Okay, but you didn't get into a bathroom. You didn't get gassed right. by your government. Uh, and and I think doing this program and really diving deep uh, the last six months, especially. Um. You, when you study other cultures, you study how the rest of the world lives, and you see the things that they go through, you realize how incredibly privileged every person is to live in the United States. Uh, and Syria is a tragedy mm -hmm. of unimaginable scales. 500,000 people have died in a country of 25 million. I think it's like 3 to 5 million refugees have left the country. Um, last weekend, as we told you in the last episode, there were... Uh, there were, was it 40 people were killed in uh, Damascus suburb, Damascus being the capital of Syria. And over the weekend, the United States and its allies in France and Britain uh, struck Syria and struck Assad. Let me find my actual articles because I, I was so busy pissing off all my listeners by saying we have white privilege <laughs> I'm going to get hate mail on that. You can write me at editor at weirdlibertarians.com. I'd love to hear your opinion. I'm sure all of you are mad at me because I didn't uh, say what Steven Crowder said. Um, that's, that's the route. You got to be, if, if you can't acknowledge, you can't be truthful and acknowledge that you do have certain benefits because of certain parts of your uh, melanin. You can't say mm -hmm. that without making your audience mad because they listen to Steven. They listen to Steven Crowder and you're supposed to say it's all stupid, uh, which a lot of it is. But it's still more complex. Um, I will say though, I mean, and and this kind of goes. I don't. I mean, to keep on going back to my show, but like Stephen Crowder has his place, and I mean, there are things that we as libertarians can agree with on Stephen Crowder, but 
That doesn't mean we should agree with him 100% of the time, and that doesn't mean that we should agree with Ben Shapiro 100% of the time or or uh, Dave Rubin. I mean, you go through whatever person you're, you you want to name. Just because we agree with them 80% of the time and we don't agree with them 100% of the time doesn't mean we take them either as gospel or as, as something that we just consider to be nonsense. We have to take everything with a grain of salt and try to digest it objectively. Well, um, I, I, ju- I just don't th- – I think it's categorically undeniable – when you study generational trauma and you study the effects of 600 years of law against a certain community, of course they're going to be in a certain socioeconomic status. We have to correct those laws, and mm-hmm. we have to be cognizant of our own biases. And I feel like the the identity politics and some of that has been good for that because we wake up and – like the Me Too stuff is a great example. Okay, how am I treating women? You know, I never thought of it that way. Right. Uh, you know, there are certain parts of Me Too that are very beneficial. There are other parts of Me Too that are not. Uh, but and and it's just like the <clears throat> concept of white privilege. I think there there definitely are parts of it that are true, but it's like, what's the solution here? Well, be cognizant right. of how you're voting and who you're voting in. You don't want to vote in a Jeff Sessions because Jeff Sessions is going to make it worse. <laughs> you know, like. And so that's really where I think I think if you just acknowledge that or like I think white people, especially at this point, are so afraid to say racism exists because they've just been punched in the in the face so many times for the last 10 years that they go, you know, and I'm not even going to address it. I'm just the racism doesn't exist. Get out of my face. Like, and that's not good. That's not the conversation you want to have. And I feel like we're heading down that line down that road and that's the same with me too you don't want to give women less opportunities because of me too like it's not supposed to work that way everyone should have have an equal opportunity and so um it you know i i apologize if if some of you are mad at me which i'm sure you you are but it's it it does exist it doesn't mean that if you acknowledge that it exists you have to start voting for al sharpton or subscribe to the sean king facebook page uh, you don't. Sean King, the whitest black man ever. Talcum X is the greatest nickname in the history of politics. <laughs> Talcum X, I haven't heard that one. I like that. Yeah, it's very funny. All right, so on to Syria. Syria. Uh, so the United States, Britain, and France launched more than 100 missiles at three chemical weapons storage and research facilities near Damascus. My God. Damascus and Homs, officials told reporters. Uh, and... Donald Trump went on Twitter and said, a perfectly executed strike last night. Thank you to France and the United Kingdom for their wisdom and the power of their fine military. Could not have had a better result. Mission accomplished. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Some of you, if you're older, may remember the uh, mission accomplished phrase when George Bush in 2003 landed on an aircraft carrier in a flight suit. The President of the United States got in a fighter jet, in a, in a flight suit, landed on an aircraft carrier, walked out of the plane, walked up to the podium in front of a banner that said mission accomplished, and declared the war over, despite having tens of thousands of troops still in the country. It was the ballsiest thing you've ever seen a president, and he got excoriated for it, as he probably should have. I mean, it was just... Yeah, rightfully so. It was just... It was so arrogant. It was just... Unbe- it was really kind of the height of... Uh, w. W's arrogance and uh, yeah, it was just not good. Um, so Donald Trump came out the next day and said, I meant to say that it's a great phrase. It's time to bring it back. Um, 
<laughs> it's time to bring it back from where? <laughs> he's, he's just a, such a troll. Uh, so the strikes before dawn Saturday in Syria, which came in retaliation for a suspected chemical attack on civilians a week ago, were the second in just over a year that Mr. Trump had been had sent missiles crashing into Syria. The Pentagon provided no immediate evidence that the sites were struck were producing the substances covered by the uh, 2013 agreement between Russia and the U.S. to eliminate. C- so, uh, I'm 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 tripping over my tongue tonight, but essentially. The Pentagon can't prove that those weapons sites had anything to do with any of the current gassings, nor can they prove that they Gasp. were that they were producing any of the banned weapons uh, covered by a 2013 agreement with Russia, Syria, uh, and several other countries. Uh, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis said on Friday, the American government was confident that Syrian forces had used chlorine in the deadly attack, uh, but did not provide any evidence. It's almost like those who don't learn from history are condemned to repeat it. Right. And I say that twofold because in the late, or I guess in the, in the early 2000s, we had this exact same situation with regards to the war in Iraq, um, where we were told that Saddam Hussein not only had weapons of mass destruction, but was using them against his own people, uh, which was later found to be, um, I don't want to say not true, but not proven. Um, and then just last year, I mean, literally just last year, we had this exact same thing happen where allegedly, uh, we had Assad launching nuclear, not nuclear, geez, that'd be 10 times worse and very obvious to prove, um, <laughs> launching, um, chemical weapon attacks on his own people. So we did targeted airstrikes on their, the Syrian, uh, I think it was their, their air, air force bases. And turns out in February of 2017, Mattis comes out and says, well, yeah, we, uh, we, we, we actually don't have any proof uh, that uh, Assad used chemical weapons against his own people. And it's like, huh, really? Here we are now, April 2018, and we're, we're singing the exact same tune, and we're wondering why it's not sounding any different. I mean, I, I'm not a big fan of Tucker Carlson um, most of the time because I do think he he tends to use a lot of uh, straw man arguments, and, and he uses a lot of um, platitudes when he's, he's doing his, his little um, takedowns of his guests. But – those are usually fun to watch. I will. I will admit it's sort um, of like he, ben, ben Shapiro constructs the left, the left, the left, and it's he's right. always arguing against the left, and it's sort of <laughs> like it, he creates like this inflexible monolith of the left that Ben Shapiro is always arguing against. And you're like, you have to be careful when you're listening to Shapiro because, and a lot of these conservative talkers, and the other side does it too. Believe me. Uh, where they're just concocting arguments out of thin air from the left, the left, the left. You know, right. so, but anyways, so, Tucker was talking yeah, about the Syria. Tucker, yeah, Tucker was talking about Syria, and I mean, he he got eviscerated on Twitter and on on Facebook and other social media because he basically came out and he said, like, number one, we don't have proof that Assad used weapons against his own people. Number one, but number two, it doesn't make sense. There's nothing about this situation that makes any rational sense. So. I went to school for political science and I focused in American government and um, I also did take some courses in regards to international relations. And we actually do uh, an international relations um, – like it's, it's almost like a, a lab, if you will, where we play a gigantic game of risk. And it's like risk times a thousand because you have all these various um, 
you know, external uh, forces, or, like you'll create terrorists and you'll create um, the United Nations. And like in your your game theory of this of this playing out, like you you look at for the idea of rational actors. And I look at Assad, you know, in everything he's done, since the the Syria civil war, he has been a rational actor. He has been trying to maintain his power in an effective way that will create not only his stability in the homeland, but also on a form of international um, legitimacy. And you look at where he was just just this past few weeks. He had the United States saying they were going to be pulling out of Syria. You have pretty much the the international community starting to. Uh, you know, I, I would dare say accept the fact that Assad is going to be um, the president of Assyria going forward. And then all of a sudden he's going to come out of nowhere and do a gas attack on his civilians. Like there is nothing in that that has any sense of logic or or reality whatsoever based on the fact that he is a rational actor. So that's where I mean – and Tucker brought this up and he 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 went through it much more eloquently than I did – but that's the thing that we have to consider is like I, I understand we want to do, quote unquote, do the right thing. We want to stop these atrocities from happening. But you can't stop an atrocity from happening when you're going after the wrong person who didn't do it. And in fact, you what your actions are doing might make things worse. Right. So let me present the opposite of the of that argument because no, I'm right. You don't have to do it. It's okay. <clears throat> I and, and I <laughs> and let me say I completely see that side, and I made that argument in the last episode, and uh, I, I'm fifty fifty on this because as you really dig in and you you take a look at the evidence here, uh, I think it is plausible that Assad did it, and I think non-interventionists and libertarians are so quick to jump to conspiracy. Uh, and say, because it's easier to prove that this is a conspiracy, they he didn't do it, because then there's no justification for the actions, as opposed to, because it's it's harder to say to your friends, yeah, I know he gassed those people, but I don't think we should go in. It's easier when you can go, we shouldn't go in because I don't know if he gassed those people, so therefore the war's not legitimate, okay? It, it, it is, it is um, a show of vanity in some ways when we say, oh, you know, it's it might be a conspiracy. Everything Brian just said could be completely true, and I think makes perfect sense. Trump was about to pull out. You know, he he said he was leaving. Why would he? Why would he do something that would keep him there when he knows, based on 2013 and last year, based on last year especially, Trump will bomb him. Okay, so the. The first piece of evidence is the fact that the OCW, the uh, United Nations group, uh, the I think it's the Office of Chemical Wep- Weapons, uh, isn't allowed to get into Syria and inspect the sites. And so Russia and Assad are blocking entrance to the site where the actual gas attack occurred. So if Assad and Russia had nothing to hide, and what they're saying, they're basically saying like, America, the United Kingdom, and France rushed to, rushed to judgment. There was no proof that, that they did this, and that is true. There is no international proof other than video that said that Assad dropped these weapons because UN inspectors aren't able to actually get to the scene. Uh, it is the, the white hats or, or rebels who are basically saying Assad did this. So we're taking the uh, the word of people on the ground who have a vested interest in their opponent getting bombed. 
So there isn't a good case to be made that Assad did this. We don't have experts on the ground checking. And I know that for those of us who are former conservatives, we go, oh, okay, yeah, the uh, the weapons inspectors, just like they were telling the truth back during Iraq. Well, actually, if you go back and study the Iraq war, they were telling the truth. Hans Blix was telling the truth. There weren't any chemical weapons. There weren't any weapons of mass destruction. Um, so you you need to – I apologize. It's very unprofessional for, for me to have my phone on. But uh, so – so we don't know if Assad did it or not, but the fact that Russia and Assad are blocking entrance by the UN into the scene tells you something. I think that's a little telling. Secondly, there is a case to be made for why Assad would do this. If Assad clears out this, this rebel stronghold, and if you look at a map of where Assad holds ground, where the rebels hold ground, where ISIS hold ground, where the Kurds hold ground in this, and now where the Turks hold ground in Syria, the rebels and ISIS are rapidly shrinking and Assad's piece of Syria is rapidly expanding. And so it is a it is a battle for territory in Syria. And so if Assad can drop a chemical weapon, which, you know, he killed 40 people or he, if he kills a thousand people like in 2013, uh, that's a that's a small price to pay uh, because it's much cheaper for him to drop a weapon and then 130,000 people exit the city like happened last week. So we told you last week, 130,000 residents of this uh, area that were gassed left the city. So even though it's now a ghost town, Assad can claim that he took that city and he can demoralize the other side more and more. Uh, And he can, without spending a ton of money uh, and a ton of Russia and Iran's money on bombing the city, which hadn't been all that effective, the chemical weapons act in a much cheaper, quicker, faster way to gain that territory back. So then, uh, okay, what about the consequences? Well, what were the consequences? You had three out of your ten chemical factories bombed, that's right. Several chemical weapon sites and their delivery infrastructures remain unscathed, and by the US, United States' own admission, Damascus still has the ab- ability to carry out chemical attacks. So based on the last time Donald Trump, you know, quote unquote, enforced norms, he still had the ability to carry out these attacks. Now he still has the ability to carry out those attacks. So we intervene. We knock out three of his 10 chemical weapon sites. We don't hit any of his air bases or any of his airplanes or any of the delivery systems that he would use to drop one of these bombs, uh, one of these chemical weapon bombs. Because we know that we might tip the scales, uh, we might accidentally piss off Iran or Russia, uh, or we may tip the scales so far towards the rebels that you could see a resurgence of ISIS. So Assad makes the calculation that if I do this, I can gain the territory quicker, faster, cheaper, but I'm going to lose a couple chemical factories, which weren't even probably producing the chemicals in the first place. Okay, so... So when you look at it from that frame of reference, you go, all right, I can see why he would take that rational risk. Now, what's so if he did gas these people, what is we we as libertarians and non-interventionists go, well maybe we do have a moral a moral duty to help. No, we don't. And here's why. Because if you go in and you bomb these chemical factories, 
where you bomb these airstrips or you bomb these airplanes and you do this over and over and over over a long stretch of period of time, you end up tipping the balance of the Civil War. Now, this is what a lot of foreign policy experts don't like to talk about. And this is the problem with the entire game. Step back from it and look at it and go, this isn't Monopoly. This is human lives being wagered by people who are in Washington dropping bombs. If you nudge this so far that you give an advantage to the rebels, they can they can reignite the civil war in a very serious way. ISIS can remobilize. Iran and Turkey and Russia flood it with money. Then we start backing more rebels even more, and the entire thing becomes even more inflamed, and more people end up dying. And that's why we're against intervention in these humanitarian crises. It's not that we're unwilling as intervention as non-interventionists to intervene. We hate seeing the pictures of children dying on the screen as much as anyone. But we know that military action and intervention tips the scales in one favor or another, which produces more deaths, more gassings, more bombings, and it becomes even more miserable for the people who live in those areas. And so it just doesn't work. And, you know, intervention... Military action, war is just like economics. Anytime you intervene, even if you have good intentions, the unintended consequences lead to bad outcomes. And look at Iraq, okay? He, George Bush had good intentions in Afghanistan, for instance. We beat the Taliban in a month and a half. Did you know that? We've been there for mm -hmm. nearly 20 years. We beat the Taliban in, in a month and a half. But then we decided to move in and take responsibility for rebuilding the country because I don't know why. <laughs> and then we moved into Iraq and that just tipped off all of the, uh, of the problems that we have now. If you go back even further, you look at uh, Iran. Why does Iran have a government that's hostile to the United States? You go back to the Shah of Iran. The Shah of Iran, uh, the duly elected people of, the, of Iran was kicked out of the country by the American CIA, and we instituted the Shah of Iran. And then the Shah of Iran was thrown out for uh, Khomeini, who Ayatollah Khomeini in the 70s, who was even more radical. And Khomeini was somebody that inspired Osama bin Laden and many of the terrorists in the region, the Wahhabists and the Muslim Brotherhood and, the, and, and people like... Uh, Osama bin Laden said, okay, secular governments don't have to be the rule. We can have an Islamic republic. Let's fight harder. So just that one move in Iran emboldens the terrorists. And then you have the entire history of intervention. For instance, when we intervened on Saudi Arabia's behalf in the Kuwait war, Saddam Hussein moved into Kuwait, tried to take over Kuwait, Osama bin Laden went to the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and said, do not let the Americans into our holy land. They will never leave. Let the, the fighters who just fought the uh, Soviet Republic, the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, fight these guys. Now they The were, Mujahideen. The Mujahideen. They weren't big enough to fight Saddam Hussein, but the royals in Saudi Arabia allowed the Americans in. We still have three air bases there. And that was the main justification for Osama bin Laden's declaration of war on us in 1996. So if you, if you really work backwards through American history, 
you end up at Truman and the beginning of the Cold War, and that was the launch of military adventurism and interventionism around the world. Uh, I would highly recommend a documentary by Oliver Stone called The Secret History of the United States. It's on Netflix. It's a great documentary, and it really talks about the shift from uh, America being a non-interventionist state into an interventionist state and uh, the, the Cold War being the justification to build an empire. So the, this is the reason why I'm against the attacks. It's, it's not because I don't care about the people dying in Syria, Brian. It's that I don't want more people to be killed. Right. And, and, and it, if I may, to those people who, who make the argument of saying, well, we have to do something to help these poor people being gassed, or they make the argument of, well, if you were back in 1945, would you have gone against Hitler and, and you know all the atrocities he did with the Holocaust? And I say, well, you know what? It's not a matter necessarily of if I would have, but if if we were going to, then you you go to Congress and you you declare an official declaration of war through the constitutional methods that we have in place here in America because that's the reason it's so difficult to go to war is that it was intentional. We didn't want an executive to be able to just decide willy-nilly that they're going to conduct I mean, I'm sure they didn't think of this back in in the 19, or the 1760s, but to be able to conduct airstrikes or or a nuclear attack in response to um, you know, a a humanitarian crisis. Um, so that's why they made it so difficult to have an a, an executive being the president to conduct these these military actions because at the end of the day, we we don't want to be involved in these um, in these foreign wars. I mean, there's a reason that uh, Washington mentioned to avoid the entangling alliances. There's a reason that uh, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, in his farewell address, mentioned um, avoiding the military-industrial complex because when we have these entangling alliances, when we have the uh, military-industrial complex, we get into the state of perpetual war. And and as you point out really well there, Chris, is that that leads to more and more of these humanitarian crises, uh, crises, which then begs us to come back in and then try to quote unquote solve them again. And it's it's this never ending cycle of war, humanitarian crisis, USA fixes more war, humanitarian crisis, USA comes back to fix. And it if we haven't learned since 1945 that that has been pretty much the uh, the wash, rinse, repeat uh, cycle that we've experienced, I, I don't know what more evidence we need than what we already have experienced. I mean, it's it's it to me, it's so obvious and it's so right there in black and white that I don't understand how people cannot see that. Um, but I think that's where as libertarians, we have to we have to bring the libertarian position and present it in a way that's easy to digest and it's easy to understand. And, and as a matter you just pointed out there, Chris, saying, well, yeah, I'm a libertarian and I don't want to see these bad things happen. And history has shown that it's because of our intervention that these bad things not necessarily have happened but has helped start the, the process to make these bad things happen. Um, so I think we should do things differently. And to just start a conversation and make people think – and you might not end the conversation with them agreeing with you like, oh, you know what? I'm a non-interventionist Republican now um, or, hey, I'm even a libertarian now. But now when they have these conversations with their more war hawk friends, they're going to start to say, huh, 
well, that uh, libertarian guy mentioned something a little different, and you know, now I'm thinking about that, and it's kind of in the back of my mind, and maybe at night I'm going to go onto Facebook, and I'm going to look at some some libertarian groups and see what they're saying about this, and maybe I'll go to Google, and I'll, I'll look up some some libertarian uh, you know, thought on, on foreign policy, and maybe I'll start to educate myself on what he was talking about. And, and once you start to plant those seeds, I mean, hell, that's how I became a libertarian. It, I didn't become a libertarian by somebody screaming at me saying that I needed to – uh, support a, a non-interventionalist or or a uh, a anti-war hawk policy. I started people pointing out these little issues that I logically and emotionally had to rectify myself. That led me to say, "Hey, you know what? This this war hawk, this neocon mindset hasn't really been working, and maybe it's going to make me reconsider some of the things I believe." And that's a good thing. And we have to be able to start those conversations with people to make them to start to look inside and to figure out who they really are and what they really believe. And if what they really believe is is truly what they believe or something they've been coerced, if you will, uh, be it through them, the way they grew up and their, their parents pushing different ideas upon them or that they've been educated in, a, in an educational system that glorifies these U.S. interventions – and that, you know, maybe I was taught things that I was uh, taught because I was supposed to believe a certain way versus, right. hey, you know what? Maybe I should start to think objectively and for myself and look at things in a, a truly, you know, open and honest way. Um, so sorry for my tangent. No, but you're like, fine. I just yeah. I, I really think that this this whole conversation that we're having right now is so important for the non-libertarian to hear but they will never hear it when it's promoted as libertarians are saying this. It has to be promoted in a way that is easy for them to to grasp and to walk away from a conversation not feeling personally attacked, not feeling they've been they've had an entire, you know, book of thought shoved down their throat, but to just let them kind of say, "Okay, I'll look at this on my own." Yeah, I I'm reading through uh I'm actually listening to the audiobook. I, I, ha I have to listen to a lot of audiobooks because I'm in motion so often that I don't get a lot of time to read. Uh, but I'm listening to Sorrows of Empire by Chalmers Johnson, and I would definitely take a look at that. That's a great primer on the building, the origins of the American empire, and how we went from a republic that was fighting against going into World War I and World War II to the place where now we're, we're unconstitutionally striking countries that have no uh, security interest in the United States. Let's go back to the founders and James Madison writing in eighteen uh, in seventeen ninety five, uh, and I posted this quote on our Instagram and Facebook today. He writes, "Of all the enemies to public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded, because it compromises and develops it because it comprises." Brian, it's comprises. And it's not surveillance; it's surveillance. I, I, just, just it, friendly uh, tip for you. It, it's not that I, it's not that I want to say surveillance. It's that I can't not say surveillance. Um, <laughs> of all the enemies to the public liberty, to public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. War is the parent of armies. From those proceed debts and taxes. And armies and debts and taxes are known to be instruments for bringing the many under the domination of the few. In war, too, the discretionary power of the executive is extended. Its influence in dealing out offices, honors, and emoluments is multiplied. And all the means of seducing the minds 
seducing the minds are, said. are added to the subduing of force of the people. The same malignant aspect in republicanism may be traced to the inequality of fortunes and the opportunities of fraud growing out of state the out of a state of war and in the degeneracy of manners and of morals engendered by both. No nation could preserve its freedom in the midst of continual warfare. Uh, you look at the opportunities of fraud, go watch the movie War Dogs uh, with Jonah mm-hmm. Hill. Um, so, and, and I'll put those uh, documentaries and, and books and all that in the show notes along with all the links for all my research. I show my work uh, at WeAreLibertarians.com. But the founders are with us. Uh, the truth is with us, and you need to stand up for the people of Syria and say we're not going to to bomb them. Now, should be noticed noted uh, the Syrian uh, government said that only a few people were hurt by our bombings. No one killed. Obviously, if anyone had been killed, that would have been balls to the wall coverage. Um, let us go to the legal justification. This is an article from The Intercept titled Donald Trump ordered Syria strike based on a secret legal justification even Congress can't see. Um, On Friday night, President Donald Trump ordered a U.S. military to conduct a bombing attack against the U.S. government, uh, against the government of Syria. I probably just shouldn't read this, uh, Brian. Um, I'm having trouble reading lately. Um, So like, uh, side start before you start reading. So uh whenever you start to read about like the Middle Eastern uh, cities and stuff that we're we're at war with, um, it it gives me flashbacks to back. So my dad's a pastor Mm. and uh, we'd be in church and he would always give out various Bible verses to read. um, And I would always get one, almost always. And uh, whenever you'd have the biblical names or the biblical cities, I always hated myself a little bit because I knew I was going to make an ass of myself in front of everybody <laughs> in my church. Um, so I, I can empathize. Only yours is, is multiplied by probably around you know three thousand or so compared to what my church had with the uh, twenty people that were in my church. All right, so we're going to read uh, <laughs> Malachi and Job today. No, that's that's Malachi <laughs> Job and, and Job. Psalms. <laughs> right. Uh, so the Office of Legal Counsel is often called the Supreme Court of the Executive Branch, providing opinions on how the president and government agencies should interpret the law. We know that Trump received a top-secret OLC opinion justifying the previous U.S. strike on Syria in 2017. Friday's bombing undoubtedly relied on the same memo or one with similar reasoning. So while over 80 members of Congress wrote to Trump on Friday night stating that engaging our military in Syria without prior congressional authorization would violate the separations of powers that is clearly delineated in the Constitution, their action had no impact. The military will rely on the OLC's opinion that, constitutionally speaking, Trump's orders were perfectly fine. And while it will be quite difficult for members of Trump, uh, for members of Congress to argue otherwise, since they don't even know what the Trump administration's precise rationale is. So, the secretive uh, reasoning for striking in Syria, according to U.S. law, is not something that even our elected officials can see. Uh, and we'll we'll have more on Syria and all the things that surround this. Uh, I've got a lot of reading that I want to do into this that I just didn't get done for this episode. So look for that in future Wall episodes or the Chris Spangle Show. Let's uh, give some happy news, Brian, uh, from a, from another country that we screwed up. <laughs> So it's not really happy then, is it? Uh, no. So oh, okay. 
at the end of the at the beginning of the Cold War and at the ending of the uh, World War uh, World War Two, a uh, young colonel named Dean Rusk, who went on to be Secretary of State in the seventies, uh, was charged with drawing the lines for Korea, and he drew the boundary between South and North Korea. Uh, shortly after that, the uh, the uh, see what happened. What had happened was. Uh, in all of these countries where there had been European colonialism, uh, they had a distaste for capitalism because capitalism had come in and you had like the East India Trading Company had the the basically the force of government to make people in India and Pakistan and China and Latin America and all these different countries they they these companies forced local populations to, basically do slave labor and not pay them. And so that's why there's a real distaste for, uh, and then also the governments and the corporations uh, formed by these, uh, allowed by these governments, like the uh, the Dutch government, the Netherlands, uh, the British, for instance, Fr- the French, Spain, to some extent, Portugal. Um, they basically stole the wealth of these third world world countries. And so when World War II ended and a new ideology had popped up and they had seen the growth of the USSR and the communistic thought, many of these people from the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s all said, well, we're against capitalism because it raped our country. Uh, and we're against Americans and Europeans because they're the ones that did it. So let's hook up with Russia and become communistic countries. And so all of these countries started going with the USSR as satellite states. And we became militaristic to counterbalance that, saying, no, we've got to protect our wealth. We've got to protect all this territory. We need to start putting bases around the world to counterbalance the USSR's spread. That's what the domino theory was about. And so one of those was Korea. Korea had been occupied by Japan, and so after they were defeated by the uh, Americans... Uh, it was up, us to, up to us to carve out who would get what. And Dean Rusk gave the north part of Korea to our allies at the time, Russia, and we kept the south part. Dean gave us Pyongyang, the biggest city. Or not Pyongyang, uh, Seoul. We kept Seoul, we gave them Pyongyang uh, because Seoul was bigger. Now, uh, that led to the Korean War. <laughs> Because the Soviets invaded, and then uh, Kim Il-sung and the Soviets invaded all the way into the tip of South Korea, took over the whole peninsula, so we fought them back. Well, that led to the Korean War, and at the end of the Korean War, it was never actually, there was never a peace treaty. Uh, It has been a stalemate, a ceasefire ever since. So it was announced today that uh, the two Koreas, South and North Korea, are discussing plans to announce an official end to the military conflict between the two countries that are still technically at war. Uh, hmm. At next week's summit between South Korean President Moon Jae-in and North Korea leader Kim Jong-un, the two neighbors may release a joint statement saying they will seek to ease military tension and to add confronta- and to end confrontation. A direct phone line between Moon and Kim may be connected around Friday, Moon's chief of staff said. Uh, it hasn't been decided when and where they would hold their first conversation. No peace treaty had been signed to replace the 1953 armistice that ended the Korean War, 
and the U.S. and North Korea have been at loggerheads since the formal hostilities ended. Um, it could pave the way for a meeting between Kim and Donald Trump, the first sitting between an American president and a North Korean leader. Although in the 90s, we did send Madeleine Albright, the Secretary of State, to go and meet, uh, and we have had several heads of, of our state go meet with theirs. Uh, so, great news. Um, it, it is going to be complicated, but you will be hearing a little bit about that. That is the history, uh, the short history of all of that. So, I would love to see peace in North Korea, and it's going to be hilarious, even though he had nothing to do with it, for Donald Trump to take credit, Brian. <laughs> and uh, one thing that really pisses me off is that we've had so many people who are in the um, the establishment uh, political world, if you will, who they're decrying this as, as some huge negative because how dare we give uh, North Korea and Kim Jong-un any sort of legitimacy? It's like, well, why the hell do you think he's acting the way he is right now? I mean, the reason he has been trying to get the the nuclear weapons is so he can use that as a leverage, a, a leveraging chip, a bargaining chip to get to the table of international relations and to give himself some form of legitimacy. So the fact that we're actually at a point right now where he's using the nuclear program as a as a true bargaining chip. I think that's great, and if we can get a world right now where North Korea doesn't have uh, nuclear weapons, that'd be that'd be great. I I don't think maybe that's realistic. I think that you know we're gonna see a positive, you know, huggy kissy, great, you know, outcome of this this meeting, and then maybe like a year or so from now, something weird's gonna happen, and, and we're gonna find out. Oh, he he continued the the, the nuclear weapon program uh, experiments and the likes, and I just. I mean, I, I'm trying to be optimistic that my skeptic in me is is telling me otherwise, but I hope I'm wrong. I, I, I would love to see it end up being a great outcome after 60 some odd years of war um, or just stalemate, essentially. So if we can get some final closure, I'm I'm all for that. Well, the problem and the mistake that we always make is we think we buy into the propaganda, uh, which is what James Madison was talking about. You know, it's easy to manipulate a mind in the middle of war. And we're in a perpetual state of war, and so it's easy for us to get caught up in that fever uh, because war is a great seduction, um, as Chris Hedges wrote. Uh, so it, it is easy to look at Kim Jong-un like, oh, he's a crazy person, but he's not. He's a very rational actor. He, yeah, he grew exactly. up in Switzerland and, and went to you know German-speaking schools. I mean, he's a very intelligent individual from all accounts. Uh, so... You know, it's it's it, like James Comey saying Donald Trump is not. There's nothing more mentally deficient about Donald Trump. He's not feeble-minded. He's not a dumb person. He's he's ab, of above average intelligence. He said, he's just morally unfit to be president, and that's the same with uh, Kim Jong Un. He's morally unfit to be a leader of a nation in the in the 21st century or really ever. Um, I mean, let, let let's also consider the fact that he's like got millions of people and like pseudo concentration camps i think yeah. that's a little a little shitty but i mean <laughs> just a little it's it, just a little i mean compa- I, I, that's the thing too like i hate when people are, are trying to make uh kim jong-un look like a better world leader than donald trump it's like right. 
sit down. Like we we do not have Donald Trump putting Americans into concentration camps and starving them like FDR did. Yeah. Like get get off your high horse. Like you can you have no moral justification if you are saying that FDR is one of your favorite presidents of all time and then saying that Donald Trump is is less than Kim Jong Un on an international stage. Like like knock it off. That's complete. Never Trump, uh, Trump derangement syndrome. Like, I'm not a fan of the man by any stretch of the imagination, but it's gotten to a point where the the hyper, just nonsensical reaction to anything Trump does, it's so stupid, and it has no semblance of thought or, or reality or logic. And I'm sorry for the tangent, but my <laughs> God, like, people who, who get into this mindset just drive me absolutely insane. Well, we're so... It's so much easier for our brains to make a moral equivalency between two things like that when they're not. You know, there's not a moral equivalency between the two. If Donald exactly. Trump, if Donald Trump had ultimate power, do I think he would be Kim Jong Un? Yeah. <laughs> but I, do I think he'd be? He'd be a what, what, what's his name? Uh, the guy from from uh, China. Him. Oh, Z. He would be him. Yeah. So yeah, he'd be him because he thinks that he when he just got his dictatorship for for life, he thought that was cool. He would be him if he had the choice. Uh, let's move on to our final story of the night, which is that it's tax day, Brian. Have you paid, your, also, have you paid your taxes? How, how, I did. how bad was it? it? So I actually got money back, and by money back, I mean I got my own money back. Um, but uh, so I'm actually lucky. My birthday is usually tax day. My birthday is April 15th. Ooh. So usually I spend my birthday giving money of my own to the government because they want more money from me. Um, but this year it was twofold. Tax day was not on my birthday and I got money back. So I'm I'm in I'm in good good spirits as we go forward here into uh, the the end of April. I have 4 hours to file the extension. Okay. So <laughs> the, <laughs> hopefully when I do that, the IRS website will be up. Did you know that the uh, website crashed uh, today? That is like the epitome of government in in one circumstance. The IRS website going down on the one day that they're supposed to have their taxes all filed so they can take more money from the American people. It's, like that is just – it's so fitting. It's even dumber than that because uh, people <laughs> ye people yesterday and today were getting a notification that says, this service is currently unavailable. We apologize for any inconvenience and fines that we will fine you with. Uh, so <laughs> just last week – the agency released a glowing press release about its new mobile-friendly site designed to help people who need last-minute tax information. Uh, the helpful links in it are all down. This leaves possibly <laughs> 30 million people. Uh, so the commissioner, the, the head of the IRS basically said, the commissioner told reporters that the agency had already received some 120 million of 150 million expected returns. That means 30 million people... Wait until the very last minute to file their returns or just don't do it at all if you're uh, – <laughs> what's, what's the uh, Peter Schiff's dad, Ira Schiff? Um, <laughs> so here's the thing. I work on websites for a living. You don't build a brand-new website in the middle of your busiest season. <laughs> yep. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Um, so uh, Brian Doherty over at Reason – has a great article called A More Infuriating Way to Think About Your Tax Burden. And so what what uh, Brian Doherty did is he goes through and lists 17 government expenditures, ranked smallest to largest, that some of you may resent your taxes going to. 
Public broadcasting, for example, costs just $1.37 per citizen each year, far less than you pay to avoid getting kicked out of a Starbucks every day. Uh, which I thought was a nice, <laughs> topical. I like it. <laughs> nice rim shot uh, from Brian Doherty, the author of the great book Radicals for Capitalism. Uh, so let's go through some of these. The top is uh, $43,000 for a soundproof booth by EPA Chief Scott Pruitt. Every cent of the tax paid by 22 suckers with taxable incomes of $16,000 will go to pay for it. Uh, I don't know what you would use a soundproof booth for. <laughs> I mean, like in the the era of Me Too, why does anybody need a soundproof booth? Uh, that yeah. just seems like a. I mean, that's like a. Uh, uh, what the hell is his name? The guy from NBC. Doctor Evil. Oh, uh, no. Matt Lauer. Yeah, the same person, Doctor Evil, Matt Lauer. Yeah, with his uh, button underneath the table that locked the door. I mean, like, why do you need that? It's the same thing in the soundproof booth. All right, so obviously arts funding. You could fill the list with arts funding, uh, and and you know art is important, but not when. Uh, taxpayers pay for it. And one colorful example is Doggy Hamlet. It's a live <laughs> performance the LA Times describes involves a flock of sheep, three herding dogs, six human performers, a few scattered pelts, and plenty of green grass and very little, if any, Shakespeare. Uh, the narrative threatened to emerge at one point, uh, at points in production that never really took hold. So they tried to put Shakespeare into Doggy Shakespeare, Doggy Hamlet, but it didn't work. And it only cost $45,000 of our money. So stupid. That's the burden of five of the sort of $50,000. So if you make 50000 bucks, five of you listening had to pay for Doggy Hamlet. Um, <laughs> your entire taxes, you make $50,000, all of your taxes, for the first three months of the year. The first three months of the year that you worked, it went to Doggy Hamlet. Five of you. Okay. Legal education for the Department of Energy employees, according to 2017 uh, report from the Inspector General for the Department of Energy, the department paid for 29 college courses totaling of $138,000 for a general engineer to obtain a law degree. The report concluded that most of the courses were unrelated to his position at the department, even though the rules governing such payments for employee education require training be applicable to the work responsibilities. Uh, he, he enjoyed 36 Americans who make $28,000. Guess what? 36 of you making $28,000, all, all of your taxes went to it. Um, Jesus. Yeah. Uh, like, you don't know whether to laugh or cry. Like, this is just so sad. Those of you who uh, are hate bombing, a single one. Of the 66 Tomahawk cruise missiles that rained down on three Syrian targets this week cost $1.4 million. That's chum change for the government, but that's the entire tax of 446 people who make $24,000. All right, so basically the, the salary of an infantryman, 446 of our soldiers, all of their taxes went to pay for one of the 66 Tomahawk missiles. Um. <laughs> Afghan prison. You guys got an Afghan prison. 6,319 of you are paying, uh, at, at the rate if you make 15,000 bucks, 6,000 of you are paying for uh, an $11.3 million prison. Uh, three of its buildings were, un were unusually poorly constructed. Uh, so, guess what? <laughs> an un unused IRS email program. 
Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration reported in 2016 that they had purchased subscriptions for an enterprise email system that, as it turns out, it couldn't use. <laughs> the purchase was made without first determining project infrastructure needs. Uh, they just basically bought whatever they wanted to buy, and uh, the IRS paid $12 million for it over a two-year period. So if you made $20,000, 4,728 of you paid for that unused email that's system. Insane. Yeah. That's insane. Like, I don't mean to interrupt. Like, so my day job, I do uh, communications consulting, and I work with um, companies all over the greater Philadelphia area. And um, we essentially help them with their, their phone and internet services. And, and just to give you an example, I'm working with an account right now that for a three-year contract is around $910,000, and it's for their entire phone network. And that's done by a private company. And, it, it, I mean, I'm just I'm, – I can't even imagine, like, if we had proposed something to the IRS of similar scale, like, we could have proposed probably, like, a $1 million phone solution to the IRS, and we could have raised the price to be, like, $30 million because right. they're going to pay for it. It's just, it's it's absolute insanity. You want to know what else is insanity? <laughs> what? Pe- people who make between a hundred and two hundred thousand dollars five hundred or wait, five thousand five hundred and seventy-five taxpayers who make a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars paid for Donald Trump's inauguration. That, <laughs> so despite over a hundred million dollars raised from private sources, it still cost a hundred million in public funds. That's five thousand five hundred and seventy-five taxpayers in the one hundred thousand dollar bracket. Uh, federal grazing fees. Uh, this program is supposed to put money in the federal coffers, but by the time the government is done with it, it tends to spend $120 million a year more than it takes in administering the program. Uh, this was the one that uh, the guys out west, the Bundys, shot up uh, over. Uh, and uh, $90,000, if that's your salary, 6577 of you paid for a program that is supposed to make the government money. How much do you think the drug war costs? How many how many Americans do you think it takes uh, making $75,000 to pay for, let's see, the National Guard fighting on the drug war on the border? Oh, jeez. Uh, 5,000. 10,348 Americans Jesus. making $75,000 will pay this year for the National Guard on the border. What's their budget like? Like what? Like a like two hundred million, three hundred million dollars? Uh, earmarked one hundred and fifty million. Okay. The total wow. budget of the DEA is two point one billion. Okay. Okay. Wow. But still, that come on. All right. So we have a, an F thirty five. One plane cost one hundred and sixty four million. Uh, and never mind the cost of keeping it operational. Just one plane, right off the uh, right. It's nine thousand. 176 of you, if you make a $100,000 to $200,000 in salary and income. That's 9,000 of you. Oh, this one. Like, how does this not make people angry, though? Like, (laughs) hold on. This one's really going to get you. How much, uh, if people who are poor, $10,000 a year in income, Mm -hmm. it takes 400. And fourteen thousand two hundred fifty-eight poor people to pay the four hundred thirty million dollars a year the government spends on public relations. On public relations, four hundred thousand poor people 
pay for $430 million in PR. <laughs> that there, there is like such an ironic twist in that right there. Like you're being paid, you're, you're paying to be deceived. <laughs> All right. The last one, San Diego's trolley. What's even more expensive than a notorious Pentagon boondoggle? It's easy for most Americans to be unaware that federal aid for local transportation boondoggles even exists. If you're one of the many locals who will never use the subsidized transportation, consider then the 1.04 uh, billion that the DOT has earmarked for extending a San Diego trolley by 10 miles. That hasn't all been spent yet, but the department stays the course. It will add up to attack for San Diegans with taxable incomes of $33,000, whether they ride the trolley or not, 223,000 of them just spent their whole tax bills on it. Jeez. So for 10 miles of trolley in San Diego for a billion dollars, $33,000 <laughs> a year, it's going to take 223,000 Americans to pay for wow. it. So, ladies and gentlemen, your tax dollars hard at work for things that you really love and care about. But you silly libertarians, you just think my roads, like, no. <laughs> Right. <laughs> just, just stop. Uh, uh, and, you know, no congressman. Here's the funny thing that I learned in the Ryan stuff. Uh, Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan's considered a very weak speaker, and uh, Boehner was considered a weak speaker. And it's because they got rid of earmarks. And so yeah. apparently because Republicans got rid of earmarks, it significantly weakened the speakership because then he couldn't withhold projects over congressmen and use that as leverage to get them to stop the the silliness or to actually call votes and actually do things in committee. Uh, and once they got rid of that, it weakened the speakership. So now we don't have anything getting done in Congress except these big omnibus bills that where they just compile on more pork. So, you know, that I think is why Donald Trump once said that he wanted to bring back earmarks. So like him or not, as Ron Paul always said, who was a king of earmarks, uh, he he took a ton of money back to his his uh, district uh, because hey it's allocated might as well spend it on my district and keep getting reelected so but yeah. Uh, yeah I thought that was an interesting all these little projects still continue but we the we don't get anything out of it we get a worse government as a result so which was interesting <laughs> I just can't believe like. That PR one, that one's insane. Like, literally, people are paying the government to then have the government use that money to manipulate the people. Yeah. Like that, that is just so, just wow. That's sad and it's not surprising. 400,000 poor people making $10,000 a year pay for our PR. <laughs> like, that's not surprising at all. Like, I, t I, not surprised in hearing that it's it's shocking to see it but like and actually hear the number but like with our government and how much money we spend it's not it's not it's not shocking all right brian nichols you are quite the 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 great podcaster you're better than me already um very excited <laughs> to have you on the we are libertarians network glad to have you on the show thank you for filling in for harry tell people absolutely yeah tell people where they can get your podcast tell people where uh, they can follow you and then give us your final thoughts for the episode. Absolutely. So you can follow me on Twitter at B Nichols Liberty. That's where I spend a lot of my uh, my time with any political commentary. Um, or you can follow me on Facebook. I do have a Facebook page at B Nichols Liberty. Um, and if you uh, end up listening to the show and you uh, you find that hey you know what you like this Brian Nichols guy and you like the show, um, you can go ahead and subscribe to uh, the show on Patreon. 
and uh, become a monthly subscriber. Uh, and as as traditional as I've been here with that at B Nichols Liberty, it's where you can find me on Patreon. And as for the the podcast itself, you can find it where any podcasting, um, I guess any podcasting stations you can find. Uh, I know it's on Spotify, it's on Stitcher, it's on iTunes, um, or if you want, you can go to the Fireside account. Um, but it's uh, the Brian Nichols Show. Uh, please, if you go ahead and listen, go ahead and uh, subscribe, and please rate and review the show. Uh, would love to to hear your your thoughts, be they they good, bad, and ugly. That's how I get better. Um, but as for uh, for my final thoughts on the episode, well, first and foremost, Chris, thank you so much for inviting me on. Um, anytime, more than happy to uh, to take part. Um, I know you you and Harry always have a lot of fun on these Tuesday shows, and I think there's a lot of value in what we just did here with walking through the the issues of the day and then to try to discuss them with a libertarian uh, lens. And you know, Jason Stapleton has a place in doing that, and I think that speaks credence to what we're doing here, as well as you know the Ben Shapiro of the world when it comes to uh, the conservative point of view and the likes. Um, but at the end of the day, I think one big takeaway from this episode um, out of all we, we've covered is that it's important for libertarians to be able to understand how to talk about real-life issues that are taking place every single day to their non-libertarian friends in a way that's easy for the non-libertarian friend to get. And uh, I, I don't mean to, to steal from Matt Kibbe um, or, or Jason Stapleton, but I think the easiest way to do that is to break down every single issue uh, down to uh, does this hurt people and does it take their stuff. Um, so if we can if we can try to begin every uh, every instance that we're talking about with that initial premise – and, and try to then build upon whatever the issue is. So be it talking about, um, you know, for instance, we just went through this list of wasteful spending that the government's using our tax dollars for here on this tax day. Um, and, and then to be able to talk to somebody and say, well, yeah, I mean, that's why libertarians, even though it's a cliche term, we say taxation is theft. You can then really start to say, well, here's why it's theft. Because, and you, you, you can start talking about the libertarian philosophy on, on you know, taking your, your hard-earned income uh, or your property and the likes. And uh, I think for libertarians, in order to see any positive um, outcomes in be it 2018 or 2020, it first starts at home. It starts with talking to your, your, your friends, your family, and those individuals who you're, you're close to that maybe aren't even in the libertarian circles or they're not even politically motivated because those are the people we need to bring on board. And it won't, it won't happen if you start out screaming about public schools being abolished and start out screaming taxation is theft. It starts by trying to make, make yourself look human, make our movement look human and to make us seem like we're sensible, understanding, caring people who understand and can empathize with real life situations and then show how liberty and libertarian ideals can help those situations going forward. Yeah, you don't have to be human. Just try and look it. Exactly. No no reptilian right. skin like uh, Mark Zuckerberg there in Congress. Or Bill Nelson from Florida. Wow. Oh, yeah, Listen, I am no. not one of those people that think like the lizard people exist, but he might he might do it for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I totally agree. I think if you if you listen to this episode and you go, why are you against bombing in Syria? We just need to bring our troops home. I think that's not as compelling as... When we make a strike, there are, there are consequences that can and probably will worsen the war, and we can and we can look back at these instances and go, when we did these actions, this happened, and th I think that's a much better argument. And I think 
hey, y- y- you paid for that Tomahawk missile. You worked. If you made $30,000, you made $24,000 a year. The first four months of the year that you worked went to pay for one of the 66 Tomahawk missiles that we fired. You are personally responsible with your dollar, the tax money that you just paid for bombing Syria. And I think we're so disconnected and we've turned and libertarians turn it into like this amorphous, ethereal, the government is our enemy. Like we're the government. You know, don't yeah. pre- don't pretend that this is some sort of, you know, thing out there that's doing all this bad stuff. It's like, no, your money. You just worked four months to bomb somebody. Uh, is that part of your value system? And I think James Comey, um, I hate James Comey less. Uh, whoa. Okay. Uh, James Comey basically said at the end of his interview with George Stephanopoulos, uh, he said, hey, do, do you think that he should be impeached? And Comey said, no, I don't. And I know that's a funny answer, but I think that the American people shouldn't be let off the hook for their choice. And if, if they can, if they think that they can just vote in whomever they like and then impeach them if they don't like them, then that's letting them off the hook. You have to pay attention when you vote, and you have to go to the polls and vote your values. And Comey was preaching exactly what we say here. Every vote is your value system. So I don't want to hear any of this. Well, uh, you know, libertarians just don't win. Okay, well, then you're <laughs> stating publicly with your vote that you agree with military interventionism. You agree with continuing the drug war. You agree with tariffs. You agree with all the things that you don't like about Donald Trump's policy that are anti-libertarian. Every time you sacrifice your values to win. I know the Supreme Court's important. <laughs> I get it. But but Gorsuch. Right. So, uh we'll talk about him <laughs> Thursday. He voted he voted with the liberals and and the right is terrified, but even though he voted with the rule of law. Um but we'll we'll dig into that later. Um yeah, you you vote your values and uh don't don't let any externalities factor into that. Vote your values. I was just surprised because the CIA director Mike Pompeo, according to the New York Times, is said to have met with Kim Jong Un in recent weeks to set up a meeting with Donald Trump. So they like met with him in person? Yeah, the CIA director met with Kim Jong Un in secret. Oh, great. Yeah, let me just pull that story. I'm sure up. that'll be great in his confirmation hearing for Secretary of State. Yeah, that's uh, a <laughs> that's a really kind of a shocking thing. Like you don't like the CIA sends in uh, spooks to overthrow a government, not to meet with a head of state. But I think that speaks to Pompeo, who is the incoming Secretary of State if he gets confirmed. Uh, Pompeo's really trusted by Trump. He's one of the few people that Trump uh, actually trusts mm. anymore. Um, Trump sent Pompeo to meet with Kim Jong-un over Easter to lay the groundwork for the summit. Um, Trump's been briefed on the trip. Trump alluded to Pompeo's mission on Tuesday in Mar-a-Lago when he said that the U.S. was in direct talks with North Korea at extremely high levels and that the White House was looking at five sites for a potential meeting with the leaders. So that was today that that was said. Um, The Washington Post broke the story. Uh, Pompeo has already been dealing with North Korea um, and South Korea as well. And Trump said he would give his blessing to North and South Korea to discuss the end of the war when the leaders of those countries met later this month. Isn't that nice of the United States president Aww. to give his blessing to two countries to 
to make peace. Uh, he said it as he welcomed Prime Minister Shinzo Abe of uh, Japan, two of the most corrupt leaders in the world, meeting at once. That's nice. <laughs> uh, Abe is actually thinking about stepping down uh, uh, because of corruption. Um, let's see. Yeah, so that's that's great. Uh, I believe there's lots of goodwill. They do respect us. We're respectful of them. So look at that. Turning uh turning near nuclear war into into a victory. If I, I'm telling you, if he if he signs a peace accord and now here's why all the foreign policy establishment, which has led us into perpetual war for the last eighty years, uh, what they say is uh, he's just fooling you. He's just trying to get you to the table to get money. He will continue building nuclear weapons, and then we'll have the same problem ten years from now. Okay, so what's your alternative? Uh, nuclear war on the peninsula of Korea because that's the alternative. Uh, there isn't really one. So peace in North Korea is a good thing, and signed agreements and treaties amongst countries are a good thing. You want North Korea, South Korea, the United States, Japan, and China all to enter into a peace agreement so nobody gets led into war, okay? Uh, that's that's a good thing. So good news. All right. Good news indeed. Yes. So thank you for joining me here on the show, Brian. Absolutely. I want to thank uh, Christy Avery for having me up to speak in uh, Fort Wayne. I recorded my speech. It was okay. Uh, And I will put that in the Chris Spangle Show feed where I talked about the two mistakes that libertarians make in messaging. Uh, And I want to thank Craig DaCosta, Jason Doolittle, Christy Avery, and Brandon Luke for being our $100 a month subscribers. Thanks to Michael Eugene Rowe, Derek Scott, uh, and uh, James Harrison. We'll throw you in there. Thank you guys for joining. And Amy Hill who just joined as a Patreon subscriber today and sent me a very lovely note. She was just saying that she's really enjoyed the show over the last six months. The show has ha- has gone through some changes. I don't know if you heard, Brian, uh, but the show is... It has? Yes. What? Much different than it used to be uh, in in cast and also in tone. I've, I've tried to make it much more straightforward and less fluff, and I am getting a lot of people saying they really like that. And I want to thank the people who are saying that because... Brian, I cannot tell you how nervous I was to switch from, you know, half comedy, half news to more information straight out of the gate, less personality, uh, and people have been really nice about it. So it's it, don't, don't be afraid to just jump out there and try something new with your podcast. Yeah. All right. I'm digging it. All right, man. Thank you for joining me. Listen to The Brian Nichols Show. Listen to The Chris Spangle Show. Listen to We Are Libertarians and listen to your mother. And until then, we say we'll see you on Thursday. Bing, 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 bing. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Are Libertarians. I'm amazed you made it to the very end, and I appreciate that. And that means that you were a true fan of We Are Libertarians, and any true fan of We Are Libertarians should listen to our other podcasts. We have a whole network of shows. We have The Chris Spangle Show, where I talk about many of my varied interests that aren't political, a lot of podcasting talk. If you're interested in getting involved in podcasting, The Brian Nichols Show. Brian talks to a lot of different folks from the left, the right, the center, libertarian movement. If you love We Are Libertarians, you will love The Brian Nichols Show. The Boss Hog of Liberty. The Boss Hog has basically created a media empire in his small town and has taken over along with his co-host Dakota Davis. I think it's really interesting to see how they've built a media network and I encourage you to do the same. Upward Political Training. It's a podcast where I've put a lot of training for libertarians on how to spread the message. 
The cost, this is a podcast where we break down the human costs of government policy. So be sure to check that out. Raw Audio Politics, where basically I take unedited speeches and interviews and stuff that I want to listen to, and I put it in a podcast feed for you. Miranda's World. Miranda is one of the craziest human beings in a good way that I've ever met. She's so entertaining and so much fun, and I think you will love that. And who could not listen to Tad Talk? Tad Western brings you the rootness tootness good time this side of the Mississippi. So be sure to check that out. He's one of the funniest human beings that I know. And if you are chubby and you need to get in shape, then you can't outrun the fork with Brett Bittner, where he talks about keto. Yes, I gave Brett Bittner a show. And you can check out a bunch of other podcasts at libertarianpodcasts.com. I have put together all of my favorite libertarian podcasts up there at libertarianpodcast.com, including our friends Lions of Liberty, The Lava Flow, The Johnny Rocket Launchpad, uh, The Scott Horton Show is one that I definitely think you should be listening to. So go check that out. Lots of great libertarian podcasts out there. You may not know where to start. Start there. And we've also got a comprehensive list of all the libertarian podcasts I can find. Thank you for listening. And if you love We Are Libertarians, please check out all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Thank you for listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Get our other shows at wearelibertarians.com.